0: Greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I'm your host, Frank Zaffero, and this is an open and shut episode with Craig Faustus-Buck. Now, Craig is a veteran writer. Uh, as you're going to hear, he's worked in uh, television uh, for a long time and, of course, now is, is writing novels and especially uh, short stories. Uh, so we're going to get into a conversation with him. Uh, I geeked out a little bit, I'll admit, because he got to work on some shows that I really liked growing up. Uh, Magnum P.I., for example. Um, So try to look past that as you hear uh, a lot of interesting tales uh, from Craig. Uh, But before we do that... I want to remind you that Wrong Place or Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books. Down and Out Books is a mid-sized publisher of crime fiction, most of it at the darker and grittier end of the spectrum. That sounds like something you'd like. You can find out more at their website, downandoutbooks.com. That's downandoutbooks, all spelled out, dot com. Down and Out Books, take the journey with us. All right, well now let's meet veteran writer Craig well, hey, Craig, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, so, you have an interesting uh, work history. You know, you you, you write uh, some novels and short stories these days in, in the crime fiction field, and I definitely want to get to that. But uh, I think people would find it fascinating to know that uh, you worked a lot in television uh,
1: a few years ago. Uh, yeah, I spent most of my career in television. And it's, it's funny because when I go to crime writing conferences now, I'm organizer of a poker game that kind of moves around from Left Coast Crime to BoucherCon to wherever. And um, everyone's always amazed that, that I'm a, a writer who actually has a pension for writing. But that's what uh, comes to writing for television for 40 years.
0: Like a pension, as in a retirement. I'm-
1: yeah, an actual the Writers Guild pension. They send me a check every month.
0: Wow, that's that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say pretty rare amongst uh, our our colleagues.
1: Yeah, especially in the crime writing community.
0: Well, in crime writing, I think is a fair description of some of the shows that you you worked on. I mean, uh, as an '80s kid, you know, I graduated in '86, so you know, my television viewing habit in my formative years we're, were in the 80s and and you wrote for some huge ones uh, in, in the sci-fi field and in the crime fiction field the one that jumped out at me was uh, you wrote an episode of Magnum P.I. and an episode of Simon and Simon
1: uh, that is correct I, I really enjoyed both of those uh, experiences they were shows I, I loved they used and to be back to back through. on
0: Thursday nights I
1: think uh, your memory's better than mine about that
0: yeah, I think it was the 8 o'clock Magnum, 9 o'clock uh, Simon and Simon.
1: Uh, frankly, Frank, um, anybody's memory is better than mine.
0: <laughs> well, What do you remember about the episode you wrote?
1: I remember that the episode of Magnum was about a spy who came in from the cold and turned out to be the identical twin of an actual spy who wasn't coming in from the cold. And so he he basically I don't know threatened his brother's life, and Magnum got involved somehow because someone got killed. I don't remember any any specifics more than that.
0: Now the way that works do, you know do they just say, "Hey, write an episode of Magnum Pi," or do they say, "Hey, write this episode, here's an outline, and then you write the actual episode
1: Well, the way it worked then and the way it works now are different now all of these shows are pretty much written in house. But in, uh, in the 80s, there was a fairly active freelance market. So you could actually make a living uh, in television without getting hired onto a show. And you would go to the showrunners and pitch ideas for an episode. Mm-hmm. And if they liked one, they would give you what they called a step deal. And the way that works is that they pay you to write essentially an outline. They call it a treatment. And then you come in with the treatment. And if they like the treatment, usually they'll give you notes and then they'll, what they say, that they used to call it, send you to script, which means they pay you for the next installment, which is to write the script. And then you turn in the first draft of the script, they give you notes on that and they pay you to write the second draft. And then that's about it. And in those days, usually the staff would then take your script and rewrite it. So that they could get their names on the credits, which meant that they would get a piece of your residuals.
0: Sounds a little bit like a racket.
1: (laughs) It was pretty much a racket, but it was a better racket than today, where Uh everything's in house. Right. So you're either in or you're out. That's correct. Uh,
0: Well, and you know, Magnum was a pretty beloved show. Uh, That that character was is is pretty iconic. Simon and Simon hasn't necessarily had the same staying power um, but there's a pretty cool dynamic there because the two investigators were brothers and had very different personalities do you remember much about the episode you wrote of Simon and Simon
1: well actually uh, that's a funny story because I was on a crime panel with uh, a best-selling author named Tom Perry and um, I was the moderator of the panel I think it was about Jacon and it was about writing, uh, translating from television to novels. And uh, I didn't understand why Tom Perry was on this panel because I had no idea that he was ever involved in television. So I looked him up and it turned out that he had worked as a producer on Simon and Simon. Huh. And with further research, it turned out that he had rewritten my episode <laughs> of Simon and Simon. Uh, it was about a sex surrogate and the, the network was very concerned about the, the veracity of the research on the show. So they asked Tom and his wife, Joe, who were co-producers, to look into the research, and the sex surrogate that they spoke to used a different method than the sex surrogate that I spoke to in my research. And so they rewrote the episode accordingly. So when, when it came time to moderate this panel at BoucherCon, I, just, I really let him have it <laughs> for that. You know, we're I mean, we're very close friends now, and we joke about it all the time. But it was just such a weird coincidence.
0: Yeah. Well, now, you wrote these crime fiction episodes, but you also wrote some science fiction, which is one of my other great loves. I grew up on fantasy and sci-fi, and and uh, including a, an Incredible Hulk episode, a Buck Rogers episode, and then you worked quite a bit on a series that I think any eighties babies will remember called v oh, uh,
1: well, I actually didn't work on the series. I worked on the uh, original mini series uh Ken Johnson wrote the original t v movie that started the whole franchise, and then Warner Brothers ordered up or n b c ordered up a five hour mini series, so he hired a couple of us who had worked with him before to form a team to write this mini series, and we spent all summer long basically outlining this thing on index colored coded index cards on a huge Persian rug on the Warner Brothers lot and I had had a friend who had gone to Afghanistan when the Russians were fighting the war there with a Kpro computer and this was before anyone in Hollywood was using uh, computers or word processors and they had had a, a race against Reuters in Afghanistan to see who could file a story more quickly And Reuters had to go all the way back to Greece or somewhere to get to a telephone to file their story, whereas with the Capro, they were able to just get to the border and use an audio modem to uh, get the story back. I think it was Time Magazine. So anyway, this uh, journalistic Capro came back to the States, and somehow I ended up with it. And um, so I used to lug this thing. I mean, it was like a 50-pound laptop. And I would lug this thing to Warner Brothers every day. It had a five-inch black and white screen, or actually green and white, her green and black screen, and it used um, five and a, no five and a half, five and quarter-inch floppies. Mm-hmm. No, no hard drive, sixty-four K RAM, and we basically wrote the treatment for V on this Capro, wow. and it was one of the first projects in Hollywood that used a word processor. When we, when we finished that, we had five hours of really tight television. It was, it was a Mm -hmm. thing of beauty. We turned it into the network and they green lighted it with no notes. They just thought it was perfect. And then Warner brothers came back to us and said, great, cut $5 million out of the budget. And so we started going through trying to figure out how to cut $5 million out of a budget that the network had already approved. And, um, Ended up basically nickel and diming the script. And finally, the studio kicked us all off the lot and brought in, I don't want to call him a hack writer, because they gave him an impossible task. This thing was so tight, and there were hundreds of characters, and there were all these plot lines, and they gave him two weeks to rewrite five hours. It was an impossible task. And he ended up putting all of this kind of spiritual stuff in there. To my mind, in a science fiction world, if you want it to work, it's got to it's got to feel real. And uh, it didn't at the end. So we, we basically disassociated ourselves from the project. And when they came back to us and asked us to do the series, we refused because they had set up too many things in the miniseries that we didn't like.
0: Wow. Um, I remember V being an event. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, it's still the most uh, watched science fiction event in television history.
0: Oh, that's crazy, especially when you think of things like the reboot of Battlestar Galactica and and some other things that have come out.
1: Yeah, well, there's so so many more channels to watch now. The audience is much more divided.
0: Well, that, that brings up an interesting point because, you know, you've written a couple of novels You've written a lot of short stories, and then we've been talking about all the, you know, screenwriting that that you've done. For the writers out there that always like it when we get a little bit into inside baseball, what are the biggest differences between those three mediums, um, that or adjustments that you've had to make when you go from one to the other?
1: Well, you know, I already mentioned my pension. Uh, when I decided to retire from television, I decided I was going to write something. That I enjoyed reading, but also something that gave me the freedom to do whatever I wanted to. Uh, because you're so tightly bound in television by producers and studios and TV executives. So um, one of the things that I liked about writing crime novels and short stories was that I didn't have to be bound by an outline. I was so sick of writing treatments, which you required to write in television. So I became a seat-of-the-pants writer as a crime writer, and just started having a ball allowing these stories to surprise me. I'd, you know, design some characters, throw them into a situation, and let them write the story. And so that's really what what, uh, drives me these days, is I, I don't write anything I don't enjoy writing anymore. And I don't worry about writing anything for money anymore. So I'm having a ball writing now.
0: Well, and, and you've had some success. I mean, uh, you've had stories in Ellery Queen Magazine, Mystery Magazine, which is, uh, I believe, a fairly prestigious uh, magazine, longstanding magazine. And I, I noticed you've been in a fair number of anthologies, um, including the one uh, that uh, our mutual friend Holly West, uh, friend of the podcast, Holly West, uh, edited called Murder A Go-Go's, uh, which was a charity anthology that was very well received. Uh, which uh, song did you uh, take on in that anthology, by the way?
1: Uh, I did head over heels. I'm not familiar with that one. Um,
0: and ha- you know, so there's a different question for you, I guess. So, you know, you're you're doing a fly by your seat of a pants approach to to the stories now, and and enjoying that. But then, when you do write for an anthology, there are some foul lines that get painted that you have to play within. Did those two things clash at all when you went to write that or not.
1: You know, for the most part, uh, I mean, there are some anthologies that are based on existing characters, things like that. But for the most part, the anthologies I've written for have been more open-ended. For example, uh, the Go-Go's anthology, uh, my only limitations were the length. You know, it had to be between, I don't remember. Exactly, like 3,000 and... 10,000 words or something and it had to somehow relate to a go-go song but it didn't have to be a literal relation you Mm -hmm. know it could be if the song was about madness you could write a story about madness and that would fulfill the requirement Mm -hmm. so it was pretty loose and most of the stories i've done have been pretty loose I mean, sometimes, you know, you you were talking about science fiction, and sometimes I'll just be reading about calls for anthologies, and something will grab me, and I just won't be able to resist. Uh, For example, there was one for zombie erotica. How can can you resist a call like that? Oh, my God. So I I did a story I thought was pretty clever for that. The the, uh, anthology was called Fifty Shades of Decay.
0: Oh, my God. (laughs) That's awesome. It was so awesome. much fun. Uh, well, I'm glad you're having fun. Um, when we talk about success, you know, I mean, there's lots of ways to measure success. Um, one way um, is obviously uh, awards that are given by peers and, and by by the industry. Um, and, and you've seen your share of recognition, not just in the crime fiction field, but in film and television as well.
1: Uh, yeah, I don't know if I would call it success. It's It's kind of fun to be nominated for an award uh, or to win one. But, um, yeah, I wrote a short film that uh, starred Louise Fletcher and Robert Loggia called The Colonel's Lady, I think. Or, no, I guess I renamed it Overnight Success. It was based on a a Somerset Maugham story called The Colonel's Lady. And that was nominated for an Academy Award, and that was... That was fun. My family flew in from all over the country to watch the awards. And my wife and I actually used the occasion to announce our engagement, no, to get married, actually. <laughs> we did it. We threw a surprise wedding when everyone was in town for the Academy Awards.
0: Oh, that's a cool idea. So you won. You won no matter what. Yeah. <laughs>
1: And then uh, when I started writing short stories, I've I've been nominated for a number of awards. Uh, I won a Macavity Award. I was nominated for the Anthony a couple of times. Uh, what's the... Uh,
0: the Derringer Award?
1: Yeah, the Derringer Award. Um, my novel won the Silver Falchion Award at uh,
0: Killer Nashville. Nashville.
1: And it was the first runner-up for the... Oh, God, what do they call the top award they have there, the... Claymore. Yeah, the Claymore award of course named for Clay. But, you know, I awards are fun, but they're not particularly meaningful especially when a lot of the time they're they're more of a popularity contest than anything else. But it's, you know, it keeps it brings people together in a in a meaningful way. And I've made a lot of friends uh, through meeting my fellow nominees. That's mm-hmm. always fun. Mhm.
0: I want to ask you about your, your, you have a couple of novels, but uh, before we move out of the uh, show business part of it, um, I wanted to ask you a question. Um, a number of people that I've known who are, uh, in one way or another involved in, in the television business have pretty much all told me that, uh, the hierarchy in, in television and in movies doesn't put the writer at a very high point in the hierarchy. They're very undervalued, I guess. Um, would you agree with that?
1: Oh Yeah. There's an old um, joke that, you know, it's one of those ethnic jokes that you're going to offend somebody no matter with it, which ex- ethnicity you use. But when I first heard it, uh, Polish jokes are all the rage. And so the joke was Did you hear about the Polish actress? She slept with the writer. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> So, why do you think that is that that's the way the hierarchy exists? What's the dynamic there? because I mean, I mean we're both writers, so obviously we value writers, but you know we're the point of creation, and you you would think that uh, that that would have more value than it does
1: well, television is structured in an interesting way um, for one thing, it's the only writing that I know of where the more experienced you become, the less valued you become. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the gatekeepers in television are generally young kids just out of film school. It's like an entry-level job. And they have the power to say no, but they don't have the power to say yes. And if they do say yes to something, then it goes over their heads and someone else has to assess it. If they say no, they're off the hook. So they're taking a risk by saying yes, and when a writer comes in to pitch to them, and this writer is the age of their parents or their grandparents, they get to feel a little uneasy about giving notes, about you know, thinking that they know more than this writer who's been doing it for 20 years, and it's just easy for them to say no. And in fact, there was a huge lawsuit by the Writers Guild because it turned out that uh, writers over 40 were unable to get work really and so there was a huge age discrimination suit uh, that the guild brought against the agencies and the networks and they won i don't know 67 million dollars or something like that that they distributed to older writers but um the um gee where are we going with this
0: just that uh, it, it's curious to me that, that writers are so undervalued and what the dynamics oh, right, right, are. Oh, right, right,
1: right, right, right. So uh, because of that, older writers don't get a lot of work and younger writers, uh, I mean, younger gatekeepers like to feel more comfortable hiring writers of their own age. So it's a young person's business for the most part. And people do age out. That, that doesn't is, happen in, in novels. Yeah. No, it doesn't quite, happen quite in, the in the theater either.
0: Well, you know, you did move into short stories and novels and you do have a couple of novels I wanted to ask you about really quickly. Go Down Hard and Psychologic, which are, I don't know. I mean, when I look at the covers, they seem to be very different. One looks like it's about a singer and the other one looks like it's about a psycho. So maybe you could tell me, if are they similar at all or are they completely different?
1: Well, they're similar in that they're both kind of what I call a noir romp. You know, I, I write noir but I can't resist throwing in a lot of humor. So um, they, they both have that feel to them, but they're very different. Uh, Go Down Hard is, is first-person presence, and it's very sort of lingo-heavy. It's very odd-character-heavy. And the uh, peripheral characters really add the flavor to the book. Psychologic, which actually I've pulled from the market because it's a novella that I'd like to expand to a novel. Uh, But it basically started as a short story called Dead End, which uh, you can read on my website, which is about a character who I really love and would like to expand. That's why I pulled the novelette. Dead End is about an ex-cop who he's kind of like, I don't know if you remember Mark Furman. But he was the cop who allegedly planted the glove that mm-hmm. O.J. Uh, Simpson, you know, the glove that if it, if it doesn't fit, you must quit. Mm-hmm. And so Mark Furman, who was kind of a jerk, w- was possibly responsible for O.J. walking. So my character is basically a, not a jerk. He's a good, he was a good cop, but he, was, he had spent all night at a murder scene investigating And on his way with a trunk full of evidence to back to the police lab in the morning, he was starving because he hadn't eaten all night. And so he stopped by his house and his wife handed him a meatloaf sandwich. And he went to the uh, he went to the lab to deliver the evidence. And that little uh, detour turned out to be a goldmine for the uh, psychotic uh, plastic surgeon who was accused of torture murder. And he walked, and this cop became a pariah because of that. And uh, now he's he's lost his, his career, he's lost his wife, he's lost his house, he's living out of his car, he's working as a valet parking attendant at a sushi restaurant. And this uh, psychotic murderer, uh, plastic surgeon to the stars, drives up a $100,000 BMW and throws him the keys. And that's how the story starts. And then it kind of runs from there. And at the end of the story, I I left it kind of uh, on a cliffhanger. And you didn't know what was going to happen after the end of the short story. And then this publisher started a, a new publishing company and asked me to write a novella. And so I figured I would continue the story in this novella. But the publishing company went under before anything ever happened with the novella. It got published, but he never promoted it. So I think about twelve people read it. So I pulled it from the market, and I'm one of these days going to turn it into a novel and possibly a screenplay.
0: Well, it's kind of it's a cool idea. Well, you know, a couple of books or one book and one novella, but short stories seem to be kind of where where your wheelhouse is right right now. And so, what's next in that area? What do you got coming up?
1: Um, I have a story coming out that I'm especially happy with. Uh, in an anthology that was supposed to come out last BoucherCon, but because of the pandemic, it got postponed until this year. And uh, it's called Jewish Noir Two: the anthology. The story's called the, uh, the Sabbath Goy. I, I happen to be Jewish, but not particularly... I mean, I'm not a practicing Jew. And this is about a very orthodox community, this particular story. So it was like investigating an entirely new religion to me. I mean, I knew nothing about these these people or the way that they live. So the research was really interesting to me. You know, they're the kind of people who throw rocks at ambulances on Saturdays. But it, it kind of grew out of a, a real-life incident where I had a cross-the-street neighbor in the 80s, getting back there, uh, in the Fairfax District of Los Angeles, who used to have a mannequin in her window that she would dress in, like, S&M gear. And um, she lived across the driveway from these uh, Orthodox Jews, and they would always complain about her music. So she, on Saturdays, she would wait until after the sun went down, and then she would put her speakers next to her windows and blast them with music, knowing that they couldn't call the police because they couldn't use the telephone. Uh, because of their orthodox beliefs about not being able to work on the Sabbath and using a machine like a telephone was working. That's Dirty Pool. Yeah, it's Dirty Pool, and it plays a a major role in my story. But essentially, a Sabbath goy is this person. when When I was in high school, I had a friend who was orthodox, and on Friday nights after the sun went down, he would schedule all of his friends to come over to his house to change the channel on his television. (laughs) <laughs> because he was, he could watch TV, but he couldn't touch it. So uh, his, when he, you know, when it was time between shows to switch channels, he'd have a friend come over and do it for him. And that role is called the Sabbath Goy. And actually, there there have been some fairly prominent Sabbath Goys in history. Elvis Presley uh, used to have Jewish neighbors, and he was their Sabbath Goy. Uh, hmm. Obama was a Sabbath Goy. Clinton was a Sabbath Goy. So it's a real thing. It's a real thing, yeah. But in this, in my story, basically, someone uses a Sabbath Goy to uh, perpetrate a murder and essentially making God their alibi. So that's that's the essence of the story. It doesn't really give away much. But it's just a really fun story in a world that's... Totally exotic to me,
0: uh, and that comes out uh, in what anthology again?
1: Jewish Noir Two, scheduled release. Um, I think June. Paulus Books is is publishing it. I think or one of their marks, and uh, Kenneth Wishnia was the editor.
0: Now, we've been talking about all kinds of fiction here, from television to novels to short stories, uh, but you write uh, nonfiction as well. In fact, you've, you've had some pretty successful work in that uh, field as well.
1: Uh, yeah, I've actually had two New York Times number one bestsellers. Uh, one was a pop psychology book called Toxic Parents, and the other was a pop gynecology book called It's Your Body, A Woman's Guide to Gynecology. I... Didn't get cover credit on that one, but I basically wrote it. The
0: Toxic Parents ones. Now, did you uh, co-write that with a, uh, an expert in the field? Uh, or- yeah,
1: I co-wrote that with a woman named Dr. Susan Forward, uh, who was famous for a book called Men Who Hate Women and the Women Who Love Them. I actually wrote four books with her. This was the, um, the, the Men Who Hate Women was the only one I didn't write.
0: And I'm assuming you had some help with the gynecology one as
1: well. Uh, yeah, that was written by, or that that had a gynecologist involved. It, that was the first lay gynecology book, and it was uh, co-written um, on the cover by a guy named Steve Whitney. But the day that they closed that deal, he also closed a deal for his first crime novel, and he wanted to work on his novel. He didn't want to work on this gynecology book, so he hired ten young writers, among them myself. To write the book for him, and the other nine just kind of fell out, and so I ended up writing the whole thing. Oh, wow! But uh, that, that was in the day, oh, boy, the, the publishing industry has changed so much. Uh, the American Booksellers Association convention was in Chicago that year, so for the launch of this gynecology book, they took over the Playboy Mansion. <laughs> And had this huge party. It was so much fun, you know, in the underground pool and all this stuff. The grotto. We had a blast.
0: Well, uh, certainly your writing career has been an adventure from uh, film and television to novels and short stories to nonfiction works uh, to the Playboy Mansion, as you just heard. The author is Craig Foster Spuck, and uh, check him out. There's there's something for you there, regardless of what you like. Um, <laughs> Craig, I want to tell you, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure.
1: Well, thanks, Frank. I've had a, a lot of fun.
0: All right, folks, there you go, Craig Foster Spuck. You know, the only thing I didn't remember to ask him about was the origin of his middle name, because it's pretty cool, and uh, I forgot to ask. So I guess we'll have to come back on the show at a future date, or I'll catch up with him at a conference. On the next episode of Wrong Place or Right Crime, we are going to talk to Sean Cosby. Now, you've probably heard of Sean. Uh, His book, Blacktop Wasteland, was a breakout title. He's got another one called Razorblade Tears coming out soon. But he's coming on the show to talk about his contribution to a grifter song. And that is the season finale, Ride Like Hell, episode 18. So we'll talk to Sean about that, and we'll get into a little other stuff with him. Uh, one of the nice guys in, uh, in in crime fiction, so don't miss that. Uh, a few Zephyro items to update you on, of course. So you've been hearing about the Eviction of Hope for the last several weeks, and uh, that uh, Colin Conway edited anthology is out there now with just a ton of great authors in it. i very humbled to be part of that, and uh, there, there's uh, been a good buzz behind it as well. Uh, Additionally, my uh, latest book with Lawrence Kelter, the dark comedy mystery, No Dibs on Murder, is out there and available. And uh, in fact, if you have a hankering for that book, uh, I'd hold on for a few more days because around the 30th of this month, it's going to go on sale for 99 cents. So, So wait to grab it then. Uh, That's not the only sale I've got going on. It's a crazy sale week, I guess, (laughs) in Frank Zafiro land. Basically, every one of my standalone titles is priced at $0.99 through the 29th, if you're hearing this on time. I'm talking about The Last Horseman, uh, At This Point in My Life, The Tradeoff, Chisholm's Debt, and Some Degree of Murder, which I wrote with Colin Conway. Uh additionally, uh the box set of uh, the Kopriva novels, which uh has a couple of bonuses in it, a couple of short stories uh that uh, are Capriva stories, that's on special as well, and the sooner you get it, the cheaper it is. And on the twenty eighth, uh, the boxed set of the first three River City novels is going to be on sale for ninety nine cents too for better part of a week. So uh, I guess it's time to grab some deals. Of course, if you're not hearing this uh, contemporaneous to those dates, don't worry. They'll probably go on sale again. And even if they don't, they're all priced pretty reasonably. Uh, You can find out more about any of those titles at my website, frankzaferro.com. I want to say thanks to Craig for coming on the show and for sharing a lot of interesting stories, Down Out Books, for continuing to sponsor the show. And of course, you, the listener, uh, We're almost done with season four, and uh, some of you have been there since the very beginning, so I really appreciate that. Uh, next week, we're going to talk to Sean Cosby. So go ahead and uh, subscribe, like, share, do all the things to help out the show, and I will see you again soon. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you gotta be in the wrong place to write crime.